Hashtag you don't have to be Jewish. I am Janice Leibovitz and you are my people of the book. Another week gone. I'm telling you time flies and we are streaming downhill till year end. And I hope you all coped with a full week. Wow, it's been a long time since we've had one of those. And I'm thrilled to have a guest today. It's been a while since I've had a guest as well. And my guest today is Janine Lazarus. Janine, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Janice. It's so good to talk to you. It's great to have you on the show today. For those of you who live around the area of Norwood, Highlands North, that kind of area, you might recall that sometime back in the early 90s, I think it was 1992 to be exact, there was a Norwood serial killer. For some reason, and although I did live quite nearby, I have zero recall of this, which is quite frightening because he cleared out the area, actually. He he really had the the whole area under his spell, if that's a term that I can use, which is quite frightening. And Janine, you were the the crime journalist on the case at the time, and mm-hmm. you followed it quite closely. And not only the case at the time, you didn't only write about it, but you followed up on it for some years afterwards for the 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 court case and his uh, his appeals afterwards. And and now we're sitting with with the book that you've written about the case, which is called Bait to Catch a Killer, and it's a true crime memoir, which I have to say is it makes for fascinating reading. And I don't have to tell you, but for some very unknown reason, humans, we as a, as a, a race, as a, as a people, we seem to have some grim fascination with true crime. Am I right? Look, yeah, it's quite interesting, Janice. I mean, if you, if you look at certainly the South African population, and I, I'm no, no expert on the world, but 70% of, 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 of the population who watches true crime series or reads true, true crime are women. There is this, bizarre, almost cult-like fascination with the crime genre. And I'm not sure why it, why it is. Um, I think it's sto- storytelling at its very best, isn't it? It's about good versus evil and, you know, whether evil or good triumphs. Perhaps from a female point of view, maybe we feel some sense of comfort that it's not happening to us. So, you know, that, that, you know, I'm, I'm no expert on it. Or, or perhaps we learn tips of what to do if we're in danger, you know, and there is, you know, we might not want to admit it to ourselves, but there is a, a kind of a thrill in watching a crime series. I mean, I watched them. I'm a crime series junkie and, and, and that's in fact how I relax, but that's not covering, not being used as, as bait to catch a real serial killer. And you were completely immersed in the story. And we were going to get to that, obviously, um, during this this interview, during this chat, but you were by no means a rookie at the time. This wasn't your first case. This really wasn't the first time you you taken on a criminal case. But I want to ask you, and we're going to get to this. We're going to take a short break first. Just think about this. Why, in particular, did you go all out and and throw yourself into this case? But let's first take a short break so that you can catch your breath and give that a bit of thought. Hashtag you don't have to be Jewish. You're listening to People of the Book. I'm Janice Leibovitz, and my guest today is Janine Lazarus. We're talking about her book, Bait to Catch a Killer, which is all about 
the Norwood serial killer who stalked the streets and the women of Norwood during the early 90s. And Janine was the journalist on the case at the time. And to be honest, Janine, you were more than just the journalist on the case. And before the break, I asked you, why is it that you immersed yourself in this case so wholly and completely? I mean, did you do that with all your cases? Was it this one in particular? I'm a gonzo journalist. I'm a traditional long-form journalist. I've had my foot broken three times in a door because I'm a foot-in-the-door journalist. So I've always, my late mother always used to say, why do you go overboard? You know, why must you, why must you do something over the top? But this particular case, the Nord killer lived, he was a cop living in police barracks directly behind my block of flat. He was raping and killing women who looked like me. They were the same height. They had long, dark hair. They were of the same build. And interestingly, interestingly enough, two of his victims' first names started with a J, Jenny Matfield and Julia Hitchie. And what was more, Janice, is that they lived within a two-and-a-half-kilometer radius of my flat. His first two rapes happened in a next-door apartment block and one behind my building. And when his rapes morphed into murder, he raped a, he, he first raped and shot a woman living in a commune about a kilometer down the road from where I lived at the corner of Grant Avenue and Iris Road. And then he killed another woman living in the block of flats behind my building. So I was at the epicenter of, of, of his reign of terror. Look, at the time in South Africa, you know, politically, this was a hotbed politics. There was so much going on. And this story kind of, it disappeared. It, nothing much happened with the story until your editor got wind of it and really came down pretty heavily on you in front of an entire newsroom. Because as you say, you were living right where it happened. And he felt that you you should have been a bit more on the ball. Did that also have something to do with, um, I mean, you, yeah. you know, as I say, like there was so much going on that a story like this, I mean, unfortunately, with the gender-based violence, and, and that wasn't even a term that we were aware of back then, but with everything that went on in South Africa, these kind of stories were buried, and, and they weren't big news stories. But the fact that he came down so heavily on you, did that have something to do with the fact that you went after the story so hard? Yeah, Janice, you know, I've, I've always been defined by my career. I don't have children unfortunately so my career is my baby and when I'm doing badly I I, I, I engage in a lot of negative self-talk I can't bear myself when I'm not busy I couldn't bear myself as a young reporter when I wasn't on top of a story and breaking scoop after scoop and you're absolutely correct in the mid 19 not mid 1990s my apologies late 80s early 1990s South Africa was in huge turmoil. We were were on the verge of the biggest transition in this country. We were transitioning into a new democracy. The the townships were on fire. There was the the violent Boy Patong massacre. Mandela and F.W. de Klerk had just been awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. You know, I worked closely with the famous photographers from the Bang Bang Club. So two rapes were tucked into a daily paper on the inside pages of a daily paper and they escaped the news narrative of the day because the news narrative of the day was the political change of the country, you know, a ginormous change. But, you know, Dave Hazelhurst, who we called Hazy, the late editor of the now defunct Sunday Star, he knew that the rapes had happened in my, in my neighborhood because he read the daily papers. 
And he came down on me like a ton of bricks. He said, you call yourself a chief crime reporter. How dare you miss these stories? So he sent me packing out of the newsroom with my tail in between my legs to go and pick up the pieces. And and then that's when you started really going after it. During the investigation, you I mean, obviously, I don't want to give away everything in this book. People need to go and buy the book. And read the book. And I think for, for a particular group of people, and certainly for people of a certain age, this is going to be fascinating for them because this is a time we lived through. We were there. We were, you know, we lived around there. And, and it's something that, that, you know, I, we always say, you know, you like to read books about places that we go to, places that we visit, streets that are familiar. And this is certainly a place that's familiar. And we see it through your eyes and we see it through your eyes at the time. I mean, you were, you were a trainer at the Sharper Image. I remember going to the Sharper Image gym. And um, unfortunately, two of the women who, who were murdered attended your classes. I mean, yeah. it, it's it's horrific. I used to teach high-impact aerobics. I was a real gym bunny, complete with lacrylea leotards and leg warmers in neon colors. And both of his, uh, both of the victims that he raped and murdered, murdered took, you know, did, 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 took part in my in my high impact classes. I taught step classes, and uh, you know, I mean, it, it was Jane Jane Fonda, you know, that those it was that kind of time. Yeah. So yes, it, it was very very close. It was a little too close for comfort. It was very much close to home. So you did say in the book that one of the the things they always tell you is do not become part of the story. And that was one thing that you did. You became part of the story, especially when the the Brixton murder and robbery squad. I mean, I remember hearing that on, you know, that that term on the news kind of all the time. And when I read about them, I remember thinking, hey, when did they disappear? (laughs) Because they don't exist anymore, do they? I remember thinking they were such an integral part of the police force. They were. They, I mean, they were notorious. Uh, the murder and robbery squad detectives were apartheid cops. They had very hostile and questionable methods uh, around interrogating suspects. But um, that was the South Africa of them, and they had a huge uh, solve rate of crimes. Next to the other detectives, they had a, a between a 65% to 70% crime solve rate, whereas other detectives limped behind them with a 15% solve rate on their cases. So I worked very closely with the boys from Brixton, perhaps too closely, because I worked so closely with them that they knew that my flat was perfectly positioned within the Norwood Serial Killers Kill Zone. I lived at the corner of Grant Avenue and, and, and Iris Road. The killer would shimmy up drain pipes, climb into first-floor flats, pistol whip his victims, and then climb out into the night. And then, as I said, his rapes morphed into murder. So one day the police asked if they could use my flat as a surveillance point. So I became part of the story, and that just about breaks every rule in the journalism guidebook. You're told by your editors to stay out of the story, but when the police are using your flat as a spy spot, how the hell must you stay out of the story? But I would imagine that's that's actually in, in the policing rule book that they shouldn't have asked you in the first place. Exactly. Well, I mean, this book centers on the questionable ethics, A, of an editor who I loved and adored, how he threw me in the line of fire. 
B, the ethics of a policeman using a journalist as bait to lure a killer, as a decoy. And C, my ethics of, you know, I lacked complete objectivity in covering the case. I remember being screamed at by, uh, he was a colonel. Uh, it was in the middle of the newsroom. And he said, how dare you turn this into a personal crusade? And at the top of my voice, the whole newsroom was listening. I said to him, well, how more personal would you like it to get? Imagine if I was your wife or your daughter. Of course, this is personal. So it's discussing the ethics at the time. I mean, I don't think I've, I've, I've had uh, discussions with editors of old who's still around, who, who run newspapers. Now that, you know, editors would never be able to get away with it. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's a case in point. I actually want to, want to um, ask you something about that. Um, if you've just tuned in, I'm talking to Janine Lazarus about her book, Bait, To Catch a Killer, which is specifically about the Norwood serial killer back in the early 90s. And we're going to continue chatting about that shortly. Hashtag you don't have to be Jewish. I'm Janice Liebowitz. You're listening to People of the Book. I'm chatting to Janine Lazarus about her book, Bait, To Catch a Killer. Janine, before um, the break, we were chatting about how involved you became in this case, in particular that, that it became so personal and that you were criticized at the time for that because you always told, don't make a story personal. And we were talking about how um, members of the, the Brixton Murder and Robbery Squad actually used your apartment as as a scouting spot to, to look for, to see if they could spot the killer from your apartment. And they used you as bait. They actually asked you to walk up and down the street one night to see if they could lure him out. Apart from the fact that that was an absolute invasion of your home, your privacy, your life, I don't even know how that could have made you feel having all these these people invade your home. There were no women on that police squad, were there? They were all men. Yeah, you know, and, 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 and the point is that it, apart from the disruption to my life, I mean, they kept their firearms all over my cane furniture. They had a key to my apartment. My, my two cats hid under the bed. Their radios cackled incessantly. They spoke and, uh, you know, loudly. They, they, they came in and out at all hours of the night. Apart from that, was I scared? Well, first of all, I guess I was. I, I didn't even for one moment, I mean, I knew, I was told off the record that it was, he was likely a cop and he was likely to have lived in the Norwood police barracks. And the reason the police made that assumption was that the women were killed with uh, nine, more, uh, nine more cartridges were found at the crime scene. So they were, they were, they were fired from a police issue pistol, a police issue firearm. So they told me off the record within three weeks of the, of the investigation that he was likely to be a cop. Not for one moment, Janice, did it cross my mind that it could have been one of them. Yes. I mean, it could have. I, di- I didn't. That never crossed my mind. I'm a gung-ho journalist. I'm tenacious to a point of ridiculousness. I, this was my story. I knew it was going to define my career. So when they asked me one dark night to walk down Iris Road with the sharper image gym on my left and the Norwood police station on my right, flanking the Norwood barracks, I did it without a blink of an eye. Did I feel some trepidation? Of course, but I also had four policemen with sharp shooters watching me sitting on my roof. And again, I failed, Janice. I missed the two rapes in my neighborhood. I was sent packing by my editor to try and piece together a story. And I was sent as bait to catch a killer, and I never lured him in. Otherwise, we wouldn't be talking today. And then the following day, they all of a sudden just left your apartment and moved out. And, and that was that. 
And that was that. And that was that. And a killer was still at large. And he was still at large. But moving on, so this killer, and and, um, I mean, we haven't even said his name. His name was Corbus Heldenhuis, right? Yeah, Corbus Petrus Heldenhuis. Yeah, Corbus Petrus Heldenhuis. Am I right in saying from what I picked up, from the book was to me a serial killer is always this is I mean apart from what you said earlier about that that all the women he killed the women he killed or two or three of them looked similar to you they had like the same length hair and they were dark and but he didn't seem to have any type of, of the typical behavior that I would associate with a serial killer there was no it wasn't any linear kind of process with the way that he killed and the way that he he started out and increased on his in his killing spree. It was all quite different. Each case was different. And even the type of women that he chose, they were all quite different. He started off as a power rapist. I mean, he told me, because if you read the book, you'll know that I have a 27-year and if you want to call it a relationship, but I've had a 27-year link with him. Yes. When I interviewed him in prison 27 years later, he said raping women made him come alive. He said he, he grew up with a deadness inside as a child. He was dead. Nothing was happening. And when he raped, it actually gave him – it was a thing that, 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 that drove him to go out and stalk women, and he came alive when he raped. I don't think there is a cut, copy, paste of a serial killer. His were crimes of opportunity. What he would do is he would recce his victims' homes out. So in the case of Jenny Matfield, the lady who lived in the commune, um, there was a party at the end of one year, I think it was the 29th of December, and he was called by a neighbour on a noise complaint. And he went as the Nord policeman in uniform to check the commune's party, and he spotted Julia Hitchie. And he came in one or two days later and raped and shot her. In the case of Jenny Matfield, she lived in Ileana Court in Iris Road. He first wrecked her flat. He stole some money from her purse, um, and he then climbed in a, a, a night or two later and raped and killed her. So his, he, he stalked his victims. He sussed out, surveyed where they lived. So he knew, you know, what, you know, how to navigate in the darkness. And, and then he, his rapes morphed into murder. Initially he, he raped. And what he would do is he would first surprise his, his, his victims in their bed, pistol whip, whip them with his police issue firearm rape them, then tuck them into bed and wish them a good night. He would then go to raid their fridges and he would take gulps of milk or orange juice from their fridge or bite into chunks of cheese or polony. And he then make his way out the same way in which he came in, down the drain pipe. But when his victims switched the light on or he chose to switch the light on, he said to me, they saw my face and they had to die. He was really um, chillingly cold. Chillingly yeah. cold. So I want to just jump right ahead. You visited him. You had the opportunity to visit him in prison more than once. But last year, as, as recent as last year in December, you, you were going to visit him in prison and you noticed um, a visitor in front of you who was also going to visit him and you realized it was his mother because mm-hmm. there was such a, a similarity. Would it have crossed your mind? It didn't cross your mind to to chat to her, to speak to her? Uh, the journalist of old, Janine, would have gunned at her with questions, but she looked at me with such venom. You know, she said we were standing in the 
concrete block of the, that is the visitor's room of Boxborough Correctional Services. It's the most dehumanizing experience. And you stand before these prison orderlies. You've got a, a kind of a ticket of entry with the inmate's name, your name, in the, 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 the inmate's uh, name also. My appointment, which, which my assistant phoned well in advance for, uh, well in advance for, um, was at nine o'clock. And we both arrived at the, at the counter at the same time. And she held up her visitor, visitor's ticket as I held mine up. And Quibus Heldnace was written on both with a prisoner. And she said, who are you? And I said, I'm Janine. And she said, from where? And I said, Norwood. She said, what do you want? I said, I'm his friend. And she looked so angry. And I thought, you know, as a young, you know, attack dog journalist, I would have interviewed her. But I thought, just I scuttled off to my car and I thought, let me sit it out. And I waited for the 45 minutes to pass and then I scuttled back into prison. I, I assume that she, she warned him of speaking to me because I, I think, I think she, she knew that my intentions weren't to go and visit. I wasn't his friend, but he never mentioned that, you know, when I saw him the last time, he never mentioned that he'd been warned off by her, by her. He did say though that his mother had visited him and, 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 and how much he loved her and that she'd given him a tracksuit and it was wonderful to see her. She was a dominant force in his life. She was, um, she was devoutly religious. Um, she, she, um, she beat him up often. Um, she made him go to the toilet with the toilet door open. Um, he, she, she, his father was an absent figure. She was dominant and she thought sex was a dirty word and she drummed that into his psyche. It's the age old story of, of, you know, it's blame the mother. It's the mother, you know, and what the mother did to him when he was young. But the, the interesting thing for me was that, um, you actually only started putting together all the background on him after your visits to him in prison. You didn't, you didn't put his background together when you were reporting on him and the case. You only started with that background much later. Yeah. You know, newspapers, newspaper journalism is, is a sausage machine. I mean, it, it, it's more of a sausage machine now because of digital media and social media. But you've, even on a Sunday newspaper, you've got limited time. So, you know, you are, you're not going to delve into the kind of detail that a book requires. I, I knew about his background, but not nearly as much as I knew now. I mean, I've, I've dealt into, I've dealt into criminal records, into court cases, uh, into his court case. I've spoken to criminologists, to, uh, uh, the, the former head of the police psychiatric unit, Dr. Gerard Labaskafmi, who interviewed him for four years. He was one of 130 serial killers that Dr. Labaskafmi interviewed. He was right at the cusp of the serial killer phenomenon in South Africa. The Nord killer was the first killer he interviewed. So this book gave me an opportunity to delve a hell of a lot deeper than than a, than a Sunday newspaper would. Yeah, because at the time, I mean, you you just you were only able to report on the case, what he did, what was happening, the the, the court case, and that was it. So yeah. so when you were were going through this background, had you actually left journalism already? Yeah, I mean, I I left journalism in 1994 when the two of the Stars photographers were 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 killed. Yes, uh, Ken Ostrom, the Stars chief photographer, was gunned down in Tokosa, and three months later, 
Pulitzer Prize winning photographer Kevin Carter gassed himself. And, and it was, it was, that was the tipping point for me. These were my friends. We'd lost seven cameramen in the political violence in a, in a 16 month space. And, and I just, I thought, you know, I can't hack this anymore. I can't, I, the violence has come too close. These are, these are, these are my, my, my friends. So I left news and I'd left news for 12 years. I work as a, as a media consultant and a media advisor and a media trainer. And I was already thrust into corporate. I was already wearing my linen suits and my high heel shoes. I'd got rid of my tackies and my jeans from my reporting years. And 12 years into corporates, Dave Hazelhurst, my editor, called me, sounding much older and much gruffer, and he said, Quivis has just applied for his first parole. Will you write about him? And I did, and the headline was, God help us if he gets parole. So that was, that was the, the, the very next time that I, that I, that I, I was linked to him. And he's applied for parole four times, is that right? Yeah, yeah, he has. He's just applied for his fourth parole. And is that still pending? Yeah. He's unlikely to get it. It takes two years. You know, he's got to go before a parole board. I spoke to a warden outside Boxford Prison who said he's got a, he's got a snowball's chance in hell. You know, they, they do odd tests in jail. They, um, they ask him to come into an office. They leave a, a, a magazine open with scantily clad women and they watch his body language. They'll get some prisoner to go in and upturn his bed and he will absolutely become violent about it. And those are little tests. So the warden who has studied criminology, um, believes that he, 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 he will, he'll, he'll, he'll remain behind bars for the rest of his life. He's already spent 27 years behind bars. He's the same age I am. I found it interesting though that they, they told you that he was playing you. Meanwhile, he doesn't <laughs> seem to realize that they're playing him as well. Well, he was because you see, Janice, um, I've covered depravity and I deal with that in my book. I deal with the various meltdowns I've had. I'm a deep empath. Um, as much as I've seen man's inhumanity to man, I have seen depravity like I, I can't even begin to describe to you. But I always, because I'm an empath, I always try to find the good in people, even in the worst of people. And I've really seen the worst of the worst. I I interviewed him um, five times after he was sentenced to death. I was smuggled down, downstairs to his holding cell and he knew my name and he was crying and he, and I was crying and he took a piece of tissue paper or toilet paper, whatever it was from the cell and he stuck his hands through the bars of the cell and he wiped my tears. And I saw such remorse, such a broken human being whose parents were holidaying in, in Cape Town, who was just so so lost that for whatever reason, I mean, I knew in my heart of hearts that this man had destroyed lives and destroyed families, but I felt a a, a twisted sense of of pain for him, a, a twisted sense of pity. And my book is about hunting for that light, even in the, in the darkest of souls. Is he a psychopath, a sociopath? He's Which a psychopath. He's a psychopath. They're common characteristics of psychopaths. They feel no remorse. He says he does, but he doesn't. And um, they're manipulative. And you said he was using me. He was. I mean, uh, I visited him a few times. First time was horrendous. I cried for the weekend. It was the most traumatic thing. He was a wind-up, talking cardboard cut out of a man. He was an empty vessel. The second time, I thought I created some kind of connection. He seemed to look forward to my visit. He engaged me more. His sentences were longer. There was there was some kind of rhythm to our communication. 
And the third time I saw him, the, the, the curtains opened and I saw him for what he truly was. And that was last year in December? That was last year in December, that was, yeah. Would you go and visit him again? No. You don't have reason to visit him again. I, I, don't, I, don't think, I don't think he'd want to see me. I mean, he said this is, you know, he said, I told you, you can only come here twice. I said, well, I'm coming to see you here again. He said, if you come and see me again, you've got to go through correctional services. I never did, Janice. I never got permission for correctional services. I was the first group of visitors to see him after hard lockdown. He was so keen. He hadn't seen his mother. He hadn't seen uh, his fiance. His fiance, an ex-felon who was also at Boxburg Correctional Services for fraud, who subsequently been released. He hadn't seen anybody. He was desperate to see somebody, so he welcomed me. But he made it quite clear on visit that if I was going to come again, I had to get permission from correctional services. It's not going to happen again. And do you think after this parole attempt, do you think he's going to keep attempting to apply for parole? Yeah, he he models himself, as a lot of convicts do, on the so-called good behavior of people who get released from parole. So he suddenly become a Bible-wielding uh, a, a convict. He says he's given his life to the Lord. He's a changed man. I asked him if I was in a room alone with him, what would he do to me? He said, women are soft, they're loving, he'd do nothing to me because I didn't do anything to him. But I said, so the, the five women you shot to death also did nothing to you, and he just avoided the question. So, you know, he's he will he models himself on prisoners who have been given parole. They go to they go to church, he goes to the prison church, but it's just an act. And that's what they said. That's what like one of the tests that they gave him as well. That's part of the test because they've noticed that he does go to church, but he leaves. He doesn't actually yeah. do much while he's he there. Sits, he sits at the back of a service and he scuttles off, you know, a few minutes into the service. So he thinks he's checking the boxes, but he's not. This is Janice Liebowitz. You're listening to People of the Book. And today we're talking serial killers, specifically the Norwood serial killer. And I'm chatting to Janine Lazarus about her book, Bait. Hashtag you don't have to be Jewish. It's People of the Book with Janice Liebowitz and Janine Lazarus today talking about her book, Bait, To Catch a Killer. And we've been talking about the Norwood serial killer. Janine, we've been saying that people have this... Uh, morbid obsession with true crime and you were saying the statistics show that that it's predominantly women who have this fascination this morbid fascination with with true crime and and there's so many podcasts I mean I know I was quite fascinated with with Devil's Door I mean let's be honest I think we were all quite enthralled by that and uh I mean I, I another one that I just have no recall of and that was also fairly recent um, yeah, and that's, that's why, my apologies, that's why this book was perfectly poised because Dev, Devil's Door has become almost a cult-like phenomenon. Completely. I was interviewed by, I was interviewed by Jana Marx for, for Bielt, Debugger and Forbesblatt and she also became embroiled in the story. So, so, so Bait to Catch a Killer landed at exactly the right time because Devil's Door is, it has become a cult phenomenon. Now that, that really, we, I think we were, quite enthralled by that it was it was this you know it's like, it's like those those car crashes you know you know you shouldn't be looking but you just can't stop but tell me the interesting thing that I want to know about is the tv series that that is going to be based on this book 
five podcast series on Jacaranda FM, which has explored certain themes of the book. The fourth episode dropped this week, and the fifth, the fifth and final episode, the real cliffhanger episode, drops next week. And the, the amount of listeners each episode has uh, or ha- has had has been mind-blowing. But even more exciting is the fact that there's going to be also a cliffhanger limited television series based on my book. Um, uh, Showmax has shown interest, so has Netflix. Oh, wow. um, of course, funding is, funding is an issue, but I think there's been such incredible, overwhelming media coverage about this book. Um, this book is in the, in, in the top uh, 100 South African books. I'm number 56. So I think the media coverage and the fact that the book is being read will get us over the finishing line. But it's going to be based on my, my, sto- my story. I'll be involved in the casting. I'll be involved in the scripting. We've already written the pilot and I will be, I'll be involved in the scout location if I want to. Oh, that's incredible. So we don't know yet who'll be playing Janine Lazarus. No, I'll, I'll definitely have veto on, on that. I wonder who the, the, the unfortunate <laughs> I wouldn't quite say that, but we'll be anxious anticipation. That's very exciting. But tell me what's next. Are you going to write another book about another one of the cases that you've worked on? More yeah, true crime? I think so. Yeah, I think so. There's, there's, there's one of the great South African unsolved uh, cases that is that is playing on the fringes of my mind, but this is it has political implications. It is the cases the case has never been solved, and it is it, it's going to it's going to mean incredible research. It's going to take a hell of a lot of my time, and right now it's get, it's sparking a migraine headache. But it, but it's a story it's a story that's got to be told, and um, and I think I have it in me. It's just a question of when. Birthing a book, I've never given birth, Janice. I haven't been fortunate to have children. But I put it to you that this was like blood, sweat, and tears. It was I the can hardest imagine. thing I've ever, ever done. I can imagine that. And tell me, would you, in writing, would you stick to the true crime? I know there's so many journalists who've moved over to, to fiction, crime fiction. No interest in that. I- I don't know if I have the ability. I guess I do. I mean, I didn't know I had the ability to write a book. It took me 57 years to to work it out. I mean, I, I, I left journalism in 1994, and most journalists have a book in them. I just didn't think I, I could I could cut it. I did. I think it will be another crime book, a true crime book, a personal memoir in part. But Bait was more than a personal memoir. Bait is is a thriller. Bait is is a story of the South Africa of old. So I think I foresee my next book if I write it along those lines. I wouldn't mind trying my hand at fiction, but again, I don't know if I have the oats. Maybe I do, you know. You never know until you try. Exactly. And you said that that um, you relax by reading crime thrillers, and I can't imagine you um, reading romance and, and anything like that. Not my really. late mom. Uh, my late mom, bless her, I miss her every single day. She used to say to me, she was, she was my, she was my greatest fan and my, my harshest critic. Every time I wrote a word, a newspaper story, I'd, I'd, I'd make her listen to it. And, um, and if I made her cry, um, I knew that I'd hit pay dirt. If I made her laugh, I knew the story was funny. If I had no reaction from her, I knew that I failed abysmally. And she would say to me, cause, you know, she taught me how to read at the age of five. She would take me to the Linden Library and we would get books and we would lie on her bed every Thursday afternoon eating salty popcorn, 
bowls of it and reading our books. And if I didn't understand a word, she would demand me to go and fetch the dictionary and look it up. So my mother's wordsmithing uh, kind of kind of infiltrated its way into my veins. And I remember her, she passed uh, five years ago. I remember her saying to me, why don't you read a sweeping historical saga? Why don't you read romance? It's all so grim and so gory. I've never been interested in movies like that. I don't read meaning of life books. I don't mind autobiographies. I don't mind stories of women who have broken out of cults or have become something despite, you know, difficult circumstances. But my go-to genre is thrillers, thrillers on television, thriller movies, thriller books. You know, if, if it doesn't grab me in the first two chapters, I, 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 I give the book away to charity. No, life's too short and there's too many books. Janine, where is Bait to Catch a Killer available? Where can people buy the book? It's available at all exclusive books. It's on Take A Lot. It's at Macro. Um, it's at all good bookstores. It's available online. It's on Amazon. And it's available on my website. Fantastic. And just give us the website. What What is your website? Where will they find that? It's za. There's a link. And uh, if, if, if anybody's interested, I'll sign it. I'll put their name in it. Awesome. So it'll, it'll have a personal signature in there as well. That is amazing. Janine Lazarus, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for your time. I so appreciate it. Thank you, Janice. It's been a great conversation and thank you so much for the opportunity. I'm so grateful. It is such a pleasure. It's been great having Janine Lazarus as my, as my guest. We've been talking about her book and if you want to go and look for that, it's called Bait to Catch a Killer. And as I tell you every week, take care of yourself, take care of each other, wear a mask, get vaccinated and read a book.